Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. idea that the themes of the Torah are that they're family or descendants, the blessing of God and land, mm. and they're the markers of the covenant. Mm. Now, of course, we're in this transition, this liminal period where it's no longer that patriarchal time where these key uh, leaders of the tribe of Israel have died off. Now we're decentralized. Now we're lost. We don't know if the Torah is still the covenant marker. We have probably don't even have the Torah. We fairly sure we don't have the Torah formalized at this point. There's no kind of single central repository of the practices and the preaching of the law. It's kind of, as we read earlier, everyone does as they see fit in their own eyes. And so we have this like, is this still even a thing now? Like this is like the crisis moment for the people of God. Like, is that true? Will that be true? What will happen? These judges aren't unifying us. It's not sticking. What's going to happen? Welcome back to Bible Streams podcast. We are a show that loves to just dive into the Bible and into Christian teaching and share with you what we discover so that we can all uh, apply it to our lives and yeah, have a great time. Uh, I'm here joined, as I usually am, by my wonderful mentor and co-host, Joseph. <laughs> Not Alex, Joseph. It would have been weird if it was me. <laughs> Joseph, James, Jimmy, Jimmy Jimbo... Call me anything, just don't call me late for dinner. How you going? Good. I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad to be here. It's um, Alex is unsure of my. Uh, is that a reference? It's, it's, something it's just an old time. saying. That okay. Was, yeah, yeah. People over twenty say. So. That's right. Well, we've um, also got Alex here, <laughs> as we as we usually do. How are you going, Alex? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks. I'm I'm over twenty for the record. Just <laughs> putting it out there. Yeah. <laughs> we've had a few cracks at him before yeah. the episode. It's just it's good for our generational demographic yeah. to really push it down. Everyone's yeah. got to fulfill a role in the social circle, and I fulfill mine. Well, like yeah. every, like if we've just had Passover at the time of recording, and you always need the youngest person in the room to ask the questions and look for the right. the hidden bread. You know, mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Well, speaking, it's always you, isn't it? Alex? Yeah, it's always yeah. me. <laughs> Speaking of the episode we've just done, uh, we're here today to do our fourth episode on the Megalot, which is a series, a collection of books or scrolls in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we've been through, well, we did an introduction. We've been through Esther. We've yes. been through Song of Songs. And now we're here to do the Book of Ruth. Mm. And the reason these scrolls are joined together is because uh, in Hebrew tradition, they are associated these days with a series of the major festivals in the Jewish calendar. And so we've been going through them roughly, well, in order, but sort of aligned in with... chronological order for time of recording. For right? time of recording, yeah. yeah. yeah which is, we uh, didn't start at the start, we started where we we're up to. Exactly, yeah. which is why we did uh, Song of Songs just around Easter and Passover, mm-hmm. and now we've come to Ruth, which is associated with Pentecost. Yes. 
So we'll get into that in just a moment, but I just wanted to remind everyone listening before we get into it that we do love to hear your questions. Uh, we'd love to hear anything you have to ask or even just general feedback on the episodes, on the stuff that we talk about. And so for this series on the Megalot with any of these books that we go through, if you have burning questions, things you're confused about, things you think we're wrong about, throw them our way, whether it's email, socials, anything. We'll either respond to them in person then and there, or if we get enough, we'll do a whole episode on Q&A, yes. which will be great. That'd be fun. Yeah. Lots of fun. All right, so Pentecost, gents. What is mm. it and why is Ruth? Why has it got anything to do with Ruth? Well, I can tell you what Pentecost is and then we can discuss what it has to do with Ruth. So Pentecost is the festival, the Feast of Weeks, which happens 50 days after the Passover. Uh, so traditionally in the Torah, it's the time where they've already crossed the Red Sea and they come to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So it's uh, significant of many things in the in the the Torah tradition. So it's God's faithfulness, God's covenant. Uh, obviously in the New Testament, it becomes also then a significant moment where the church is birthed, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, probably echoing God's covenant commitment to his people at Sinai. Then we see it uh, expressed in the new covenant uh, following Jesus's death and resurrection and uh, is also uh, his ascension happens before that as well. It's it's 10 days after his ascension. So it's the birthplace of the church where the Holy Spirit falls, flames on the heads, that whole thing. Uh, again, really reminiscent of the giving of the law, which is really exciting. And so that's where we find ourselves in that kind of that 50 days uh, after. So it's seven weeks. It's the day after the seven weeks ends uh, after Passover. But why it's important for the book of Ruth I'll throw to the esteemed, yeah. my esteemed colleague, Alex Walker, who I'm sure was just very quickly Googling uh, his own <laughs> no. notes that he made weeks ago yeah. about why this is significant. It's to do with, well, part of it's to do with um, harvests. Yes. Right? You're definitely taking me back like eight weeks to when we recorded yeah, the yeah. first episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. So first bit is the agrarian calendar. Obviously, if you take Ruth at face value, it itself is an incredibly agrarian pastoral kind of book. Mm. There's lots of... Um, harvests and things like that. And Pentecost takes place in that sort of June period value, which is end of the wheat harvest, start of the next fruit harvest, they sometimes call it. Um, and we get we get a few different harvest kind of moments in Ruth, but the main sort of action takes place around um, threshing floors and the wheat harvest and things like that. Mm. So that's uh, one connection based on the calendar. Potentially as racy as Song of Songs I read in one commentary. Um, potentially. Quite suggestive things happen. So, <laughs> I think um, potentially. <laughs> I think we can see if we can make Alex blush again like we did last episode on Song of Songs. Oh, yeah, just saying threshing floor, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. but yeah, so that's, that's part of the connection. Yeah, although I think we should probably point out that the, the timing of the settings yes. is a little bit different. I think Pentecost is yeah, in between two of the grain harvests, whereas um, – Ruth is set at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is the, the first one. So slightly, slightly off. But the other potential connection is, um, as you mentioned, Joe, with that idea of the, the giving of the law at Sinai and this covenant commitment of the people to um, Yahweh, to the Lord, really connects quite well with um, the opening scene of Ruth uh, where mm. there's a lot of um, turmoil that this family's in and, and relationships and you end up with these two women in a, in a really terrible position and um, there's an, uh, an expression of commitment to not only each other but also to, to Yahweh again and that potentially ties in with this idea of covenanting together yeah. with faithfulness and also with, you know, how the people of God is defined and there's you know, elements of around 
Naomi being a native-born Israelite, uh, Ruth being a, a foreigner and mm. coming into that culture and committing to to follow the God of Israel um, is really, really cool mm. themes. And um, we discussed right back in our opening episode that it probably wasn't until around 2nd century AD that Ruth and Pentecost were really closely associated. So it could possibly be in that rabbinical tradition that was coming out of that, mm. uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, where they're trying to connect back those covenant connections between God and his people of what sacrificial loves look like when the temple is now not there, when their means of worship has changed. So Torah obedience, all that kind of stuff factors into it, but we really don't know. Um, <laughs> probably I a PhD thesis in it somewhere. There's always a PhD thesis in it, yeah. <laughs> T- tell me about it. Um, one other one. I think we mentioned this in our introductory episode as well, but in case we didn't, I'll bring it up again. Final potential connection is, um, as we'll see when we get to the end of Chapter 4 of Ruth, when King David becomes a bit of a character in the story. Well, not in the story, but he's mentioned in a bit of a genealogy. Quick name check. Yeah, quick <laughs> quick fact check. Um, uh, I think either tradition or the Bible actually records it as King David's birth date and death date being on Pentecost. It's true. So mm-hmm. it's another reason um, that Jewish tradition still has it, the book of Ruth read out on Pentecost. Very cool. All right. Well, as we usually do, it might be good to uh, run through a bit of an overview of the book and, and some introductory issues. Uh, I don't know where you want to start, but should we start with the old faithful authorship and date? Why not? I, I suspect it's quite a short conversation when we can do this. <laughs> Probably. Well, dating, we know from the text that it's situated in the time of the judges. So That's right. Talking about the, the early conquest, kind of following Joshua into the kind of, um, volatile period of political upheaval and tribal conflict, which goes for somewhere between, it depends on which commentary you read, uh, I think about 200 years to somewhere up to six to 700 years, depending on how people stack genealogies and, yeah. and overlaps. So, uh, yeah, so, that's where it sits. So you can't be written before. Narratively. Then. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, it really does come down to what you think about the authorship, which is a really um, vague and, yeah, <laughs> in some ways not very interesting conversation because no one knows really. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's really only one individual figure that's ever been sort of attributed at a large level to um, the authorship of Ruth, and that's the prophet Samuel. Um, that's a tr- very traditional view, but it's highly disputed and it's not written anywhere in the text. As with a lot of books, it's anonymous. Um, and so there are a lot of different options and, you know, ranges from an anonymous court official may have written it during the Babylonian exile, an anonymous yes. prophet or academic in the post-exilic period, uh, someone attached to Samuel, you know, during the judges or the early kingdom period, maybe during the kingdom period, a, a member of David or Solomon's retinue. It, it really just depends. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I guess it's linked also to the purpose of the book and how you read yes. that. But really the the options range from, as you say, that conquest period or late conquest period right through to, you know, just before the time of Christ mm-hmm. potentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, it's it's wonderfully ambiguous. But what's complex about it is that because there's, actual people from the genealogy of King David and subsequently Christ, we have to treat it with some level of it's not potentially when we discuss things like Jonah or other of these shorter books that are quite stylized, quite, you know, neat and tidy in their kind of narrative structure and that kind of stuff, we can go, oh, maybe this is just, you know, this is allegory. This is a a fiction that's presented in order to, you know, um, teach a truth, all that kind of stuff. But with Ruth, it's complex because we have clear genealogies. We have yeah, all of that recorded throughout kind of the, the wider scriptural narrative. So, yeah, 
it's it's hard to know what is actually going on, what's actually factual, and what's just you know historical fiction, which situates uh, some important facts. And whenever we talk about authorship, it's also good to remember that. Um, there's also editorial mm. things that can take place, especially with things like genealogies and things like that. Um, when they're assembling books and texts and they want to situate it in history or um, provide a particular reason for its you know, significance in the Jewish tradition, great way to do that is with a genealogy or something like that. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, same thing, authors had scribes who compiled things in different ways as well. And mm. so really we just don't know. Yeah, so it has certainly been argued that the genealogy at the end of Chapter 4 is not original to the story and was mm. tacked on later. Although the counter to that is that there are other genealogies of David in the Bible uh, that do mention Boaz in his lineage. So it, exactly, it yeah. wouldn't be without yeah. um, you know a basis mm. in some sort of um, historical record. And either way, it doesn't make it any less significant if it is. Mm. No. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so what, let's talk a bit more about the setting then and potentially – issues around genre. So we said set in the period of the judges. And I suppose when you hear about judges, there are a couple of lines from that book that kind of stand out as to what the period was like. Yeah. The first one is, uh, I think it occurs in chapter two, where it basically says Israel, Israel did evil yeah. in the eyes of the Lord. I think that occurs in nearly every that, chapter. Yep. Several yeah. times. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Was it, um, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much, pretty much. Um, they're not having a great time of uh, being faithful to the law and the covenant that God set for them, and uh, they experience some consequences as a result. The other one that always gets trotted out actually doesn't appear till the end of Judges, um, but it's in Judges 17 the first time I think it says, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit, which kind of also yeah. encapsulate, encapsulates that that the vibe of, mm. the, of the period really. Like <laughs> yeah. people are not being faithful to the way that God has called them mm. to. They're doing what they please, and that's inevitably leading them away from his way of life. Yeah. I think it's, I always find it fascinating too when you situate things in the time of the judges because um, you know, just growing up in church, reading the Bible, you kind of have this picture in your mind of the, the nation of Israel. They, they come out of Egypt. They're kind of all formed. They take the land. They're all set up. Um, but actually when you read through judges, it's so decentralized. It's so tribal. We very rarely have you know, the whole nation coming together, let alone multiple tribes and the tribes are fighting each other at various times and all sorts of stuff's going on. So you get this quite scattered and quite chaotic time and all of those judges' stories are really little vignettes of mm. local moments, local movements, local incidences with specific tribes. And so Ruth does fit kind of thematically nicely into that and is a really nice counterpoint. But, yeah, it's a... It, it's nice that nothing bad happens in Ruth because it's about the only thing good that happens in the <laughs> time true. of the judges. Yeah. Like even the judges themselves are pretty rough. There's some like, entertaining stories. Though, there are some but, very entertaining uh, stories. They're yeah. not great. I've often heard judges described as a downward spiral because there's the circular motion of you know the Israelites are doing the same thing over and over, and the cycle just repeats itself. Where it, God. Uh, Right. does also seem to be getting progressively worse. Yeah, and that's the, <laughs> that's the downward bit of the spiral. Yeah. It's going in circles but downwards. So, mm. um, And, I mean, you can – there is elements in Ruth where you can see um, why it's, you know, from the period of the judges and we'll get to them in the chapters, but even the famine in the land at the start of the book and, and things like that. Um, and like you were saying, Joe, the kind of the tribal kind of idea of the setting, there's lots of things in the book which indicate that Israel is perhaps not on the best terms 
yeah yeah with god which is um the feature of the book of judges mm. but even the wrestle with the idea of national identity in a time where it's decentralized because as you said chris there's no king there's no central authority there's no ruling kind of infrastructure there's just these tribal places where the prophets of god have told them this is where you're going through you know moses and joshua and then all of a sudden that's gone and we get these local leaders and we still don't have a king or even another prophet like samuel yeah. who stands up and starts to organize the people and direct them according to what god's saying so it is a complete time of of chaos, which, um, yeah, is it must have been complex, uh, even looking back on that, about how to navigate that in terms of creating that that salvation history and that redemptive arc through that time. Mm. So I guess geopolitically where mm. to locate this story, um, on Israel's side, we're set in the tribe of Judah specifically, so yeah. quite quite a prominent tribe in geographically located in the southern area of the promised land. Um, it's where Jerusalem uh, would ultimately be, I think, depending on where this falls. Oh, no, this does fall before David, so that means Jerusalem yeah, so is held by the foreign Jebusites, people, yeah. the Jebusites at this point in time. It's so still called Salem, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Um, but we're set specifically in a little town called Bethlehem. Oh, never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> well, see, yeah, so it rings a bell to us um, as Christians, but it would have rung a bell potentially to the original audience of the book as well as the town where David was from. Mm. Before that point in time, not really notable for any particular reason. Quite a small town. Um, the name, I think, means the house of bread. Mm-hmm. A bit mm-hmm. ironic given that there's a famine. Yes. Um, but <laughs> don't, don't miss that point. <laughs> don't miss yeah. that point. <laughs> by the end, there's no longer a famine. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. but, that, but that's where we're set up. The other place that we're taken to in the action of the story is Moab, mm. which is a country that's across, basically straight across to the east, across the Dead Sea from the tribal area of Judah. And Moab's a pretty interesting place. Yes. So Moab, um, if if you look at the scriptural kind of depiction of Moab, uh, the, the, the descendants of Lot via his daughters. So after the the scene at Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment, then uh, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt in, in Genesis, and then his daughters get him drunk and because they're concerned, which uh, is somewhat kind of uh, also echoes in Ruth. There's this concern for offspring yeah. and mm-hmm. the longevity of a family line, and so uh, his daughters take matters into their own hands and get him drunk and become pregnant by him, and so Moab is one of the two Children, so Ammon and Moab are the two offspring. Is Genesis nineteen? I think it's. I looked it up and I didn't write it yes. down. It's 19, about there. Genesis yes. nineteen thirty-seven. So the Ammonites Moab comes on the scene. Yeah, yeah. The Ammonites and the Moabites are both descendants of Lot, so they're you know from Abraham's family line, but um, not necessarily um, on the best of terms with Israel. And uh, <laughs> yes, as no, we see, as just, it splits, not because, just because of the incest. Yes, I mean so that's kind of that. bad enough. Yeah, but then um, we have then Moab doesn't treat Israel well on their return to the land. There's a whole interaction which doesn't go well. Including a donkey. (laughs) Yes. And so, uh, you know, as we were looking up just before we came on air, you know, Moab gets mentioned many of times in oracles against nations, uh, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in the Minor Prophets as well. Moab um, doesn't come off well. But as we will discuss as we jump in, God's plans aren't always... um, said and done when it comes to people who have stood in his way. Mm. I suppose the two things that are probably worth just keeping in mind as we read through Ruth um, in in terms of how Israelites would have perceived Moabites is one that um, they're one of, I think, two nations that were explicitly excluded from the assembly of the Lord, so from coming together with the community, Mm. either at the tabernacle or, or at the temple in later years. 
And uh, I think we talked about that in uh, our Ezra and Nehemiah series yes. as being so an issue that initially, crops up. Initially, uh, in Deuteronomy, I think that prohibition is made. And then yeah, okay, Deuteronomy 23. Uh, and then the other one is that they're also noted as one of the nations that is regularly oppressing Israel during the judges' period, yeah. mm-hmm. fighting against them and and generally giving them a rough time. Mm. So yeah, it's uh, so it's provocative to say the least that Moab becomes uh, a player in the story of Ruth, and that our heroine is a Moabitess is mm. um, problematic so, to say the least. It would have been confronting to any reader, literally, if written from the late conquest on, would have been quite um, challenging to read this. Mm. Any foreigner, let alone a Moabitess. Yeah. Mm. So we've got all these historical, cultural touch points. What does that tell us, maybe I'll throw to you, Alex, about the genre of Ruth? That's a good question. What What do those <laughs> touch points tell us about the genre? <laughs> Hard to say. Uh, <laughs> okay. in, the, in terms of written in the time of Judges, and if we give Samuel the authorship, by the way, Samuel was last judge of Israel. So that's a little feather in his hat in terms of authorship. Doesn't make it true though. Um, Necessarily. Yes. In in that way, we can see it somewhat as historical fiction or as like historical narrative in the sense that um, it's given date and place and genealogy and things like that. And by someone um, who has books after him in those times, but the narrative style lends itself a bit more. I think we've talked about this with Esther and stuff like as well. I heard it described a lot as a play, Mm. Um, where, um, and we were talking off air about how this might be one of the first books we've done for a while where the, um, the four chapters actually line up quite nicely with the structure of the book, um, which is a relief for us. Um, but there's, there's a few literary things throughout the book that, that kind of show it moving through different acts or different scenes, um, where action takes place, um, kind of roughly per chapter in a specific location, um, with some dialogue and then it moves on and it takes place in another location, um, and it's very play-like in that sense. I think uh, chapters one, two, and four all have like a little opening line that sets the scene and a concluding line that kind of summarizes what happened um, with chapter three being the, exec- uh, the exception. It's kind of like stage directions um, in a way. So mm. it sets itself up like that um, as a bit of a play. But I think you could also see it as um, historical narrative as well if you wanted to. Yeah, so I guess, you know, historical narrative being, you know, a lightly editorialized account of of pretty much true and accurate events historical mm. fiction being an historical core or set of you know you know accurate facts that have then been you know fictionalized or yes. woven together in a way that didn't necessarily happen the way it's presented but is trying to tell us a message um i have seen some scholars present it potentially as complete folktale or yeah. allegory um to me i that's probably unlikely given those historical connections um, and then the inclusion of the genealogy at the end, whether it's original or not. It does in a lot of ways remind me of Esther mm. in, in the sense that it's presented as this wonderful, um, you know, narrative arc with, you know, coincidence. It's not really yeah. coincidence. And, <laughs> you know, very tidy. people's names, you know, um, matching up with the events that play out around them. Yes. And, um, yeah, but... There's something about it too that that rings true as well, especially with those historical connections. So, I'm happy to say somewhere between historical historical narrative and and sort of lightly yeah. editorialized, but mm. but and but quite similar to Esther too. It doesn't really. There's no direct action attributed to God 
in there. The oh, a couple of times. Yeah. He's at least mentioned, Sorry. yeah. He's, he's not portrayed as an actor in the events. He's mentioned as someone who's doing things behind the scenes. But in a way, like Esther, we don't have the, the grand events that we've had through Genesis and Exodus where, you know, the, the revelations of himself, the kind of the theophanies of burning bushes and, and clouds of fire and things like that. We don't have any of that. We just have this sense that God is maneuvering things behind the scenes, which is, I think, again, akin mm. to Esther and um, and helpful in, I think, grounding it in the fact that this is potentially historical f- narrative that has been fleshed out. Obviously, words weren't necessarily recorded accurately, but we get the sense of the action by the dialogue that is inserted. And so, you know, um, if you're going for full-on metaphor, you probably would have had God do a few more mm-hmm. specific things that kind of set it up behind <laughs> the scenes. So, if mm. anything, that kind of like relates nicely to the time period of the judges in mm. which, I mean, God was working powerfully and stuff, but he, he mainly did it through the actions of a, of a man, through a judge or, or a woman, there's a few. Um, and I mm. think as we, as we go through it, we'll see that Boaz is kind of that conduit of, um, you know, God's action in the book. Mm. Um, so he's working behind the scenes and that he's not showing up visibly in like theophanies, like we're used to in Exodus, yeah. like you were saying, but yeah, the action kind of happens through the characters and, and particularly we'll see through, through Boaz and we might talk about some typology and allegory and stuff there. Yeah. yeah. And probably not to steal any thunder from where we'll get to, but I think one of the things that's also worth mentioning is that there's quite a lot of technical language and quite, um, intricate, um, kind of, law adherence yeah ruth that at a surface reading you don't really pick up like oh that's nice isn't that lovely that's a beautiful coincidence oh it's good that he's doing that thing but there's (laughs) you know there's all of this loaded technical language which if you're familiar with the torah then you know oh hang on there's a lot playing behind the scenes here so there's these these roles of who boaz plays and what he represents and what he's doing on behalf of you know the the nation and the family and the region and all these kind of things there's a whole lot going on so uh, i hope as we jump into the chapters and we unpack some of that. It actually shows you below the hood, there's quite a lot happening in Ruth that helps us understand the bigger picture of what God's doing, eventually fulfilled, spoilers, in Jesus. Yeah. Oh. I'm so looking forward to that bit. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be talking about? <laughs> True. True. Could be anyone. Oh, dear. All right. So we mentioned structure. Um, I don't know if there's too much more to say. You're right in that the chapter divisions do actually align very neatly with the action. You could probably subdivided a little bit more if you wanted to, but it's not necessary. Is there anything more about structure that we want to say? Not overly. Four scenes, four movements. Um, yeah. You could just throwing forward into the time. Yeah. You of could Samuel. call it a chiasm or a chiasm like. It's not yes, a strict sorry, yes. chiasm, but it's got that sort of downward arc with a turning point and then an upward arc. Mm. Um, you can kind of debate where exactly that turning point is, but it's somewhere in chapter two, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My, um, my vote is verse 21, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but know. there is the nice kind of um, undoing and redoing, um, you know, which you get in various places like Job, you know, what happens yes, at the start that's yeah. taken off is restored at the other end. There's that kind of vibe of the chiasm. So there's a, a narrative, if not necessarily a theological chiasm. In it. I wonder if we'll yeah. ever get an episode where we don't say the word chiasm. That's true. Chiasms tend to fit very nicely in like these short books where it's like, you know, highly editorial, editorialized or like, you know, it's easy to fit one in. Job is a bit more difficult, isn't it? Like, it is a it's, little. A, it's, it's long so and it's The intro illegal. and outro yeah. make it easy. The intro yeah. and outro make it a bit of a chiasm where it's like a, a general undone, redone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, well, what's the difference between chiasm and bookends? Like, yeah, come exactly. on, like, you know, <laughs> we just want to say chiasm. Yeah. Sorry, Chris, continue. No, that's fine. Well, I thought we should probably um, turn our attention to some of the major theological themes that yes. are kind of woven throughout the book. Um, 
there's probably a few different angles you could take. For me, one of the best ones that I saw put forward that kind of encapsulate everything that the book is about was put forward by Andre Lecoq. His description of the overarching theme of Ruth is that God is greater than his law. Um, mm, I like that. Which plays into this idea, and we'll talk to it more throughout the, the chapters, no doubt, um, this Hebrew word chesed mm. or loving kindness. Well, it's so difficult to translate, but yeah. you know, loving kindness, loving kindness. Um, covenant faithfulness, loyalty, commitment. Mm-hmm. This idea of, of, of virtue or benevolence that goes beyond what you're obliged to do. Um, mm. And basically this idea that God and the characters in the book mirroring him or, or, or acting as conduits, as you said, Alex, for him, go beyond what is simply required of them by law or by tradition mm. or by social expectation, but go that step further as an illustration of God's love for his people. Mm. Um, and that kind of encapsulates everything else that goes on. Which we'll see really too at the kind of the penultimate moment is that also illustrated in the negative by some of the other players in the book mm. about what it looks like to stick with the law and the implications that might have for your own well-being. Mm. So, yeah, that's interesting. I like that. I hadn't thought of it like that, but I do like that. Um, for me, I mean, one of the huge themes that leaps off the page is the providence of God, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. That, uh, he's working behind the scenes. It's the the hidden hand of God maneuvering uh, circumstance and situation to prompt the the covenant people of God to continue to progress in their relationship with him towards you know the, that end of his kingdom breaking in eventually we see millennia later but yeah the the hidden hand of God working uh, behind the scenes for me there's um, a few more I'll let you go go yes thank you that's the problem with going last is that <laughs> yeah. they're all taken you should have just jumped in uh, <laughs> I, should, I should have just interrupted you guys yeah I was going to talk about his head as well it's mentioned the actual words mentioned a couple of times mm-hmm. in Ruth um, it's a pretty big theme. The one I saw a lot of commentators encapsulate it with a word for a theme was like regeneration or mm-hmm. restoration. Um, and I, this is, a, I think, a, quite a very popular theme with like sort of modern devotional kind of um, angles at the Book of Ruth as well, um, where uh, the beauty for ashes idea where, mm. like, like we were talking about before, the, the Job kind of story where everything is taken away um, from Naomi and then, you know, it's all restored and kind of double. Um, or in even greater significance at the end of the book. Um, I think you also mentioned, um, Chris, the uh, Torah is a big theme. There's actually a, like like a lot of throwbacks to specific law terms, like you were saying, Joe. Um, and so they, they, and they make up like very significant portions of the book in the sense that the, the events of the book hinge um, on those terms a lot of the times. So um, that's another big theme for me. Yeah. Mm. There's also a fair bit to do with foreigners and the, uh, the role that foreigners play in God's community uh, and how he uses them. And there's certainly like there's a lot of emphasis put on Ruth's background and, and how um, that influences how people treat her and how um, God treats her, you know, through his behind the scenes work. There's a lot made of the sort of migration motif. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, strong callback to, particularly with the famine, callback to, you know, Jacob and his family yeah. originally and their yeah. their movement throughout the, um, the ancient Near East. Um, but, yeah, you mentioned, Alex, the, the throwbacks to Torah and some of the key throwbacks are really around how God's community and his people are supposed to care for the outcast, the poor, mm-hmm. the foreigner, um, those who are on the margins of society and how they might be included in in his people, which is really interesting. Yeah. 
Mm, I, I think for me too, uh, it is a, definitely a subset of um, hesed, but that sense of loyalty specifically, because it, it's such a hard word to to translate. It has such a richness of meaning. But um, there is um, the theme of loyalty from Ruth to Naomi, the way that Boaz is loyal, and in a way that is probably, for me at least, countercultural today. Um, it, I guess that selflessness of it, but the loyalty that that's not tribalism, that it's not self-focused either. It's actually mm. this depiction of God's loyalty to his people. Yeah. Well, I think it was potentially counterculture at the time too because one of the Quite key yeah. relationships where the loyalty is demonstrated is the relationship between two women. Yeah. Um, mm. And I think from what I've read, that's quite an unusual depiction, um, you know, in ancient kind of um, thinking and ideas, this idea that two women not only they have a fair amount of agency and make choices mm. with and for each other, uh, but that their commitment and their relationship is for each other mm. before then it becomes sort of in relationship to other men and even to God, which is, um, yeah, mm. uh, fascinating way of putting it. There's one thing, um, I don't know if we should save it, but there was, there's, there's one thing that I've read a couple of times um, around this idea of the, the book's treatment of foreigners and and um, particularly Moabites and, and how that relates to potentially all the ship and, and dating and purpose. And that is that Ruth was written as a polemic against um, the politics of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ooh. There you go. That would make sense. And sort of a counter to the, that ethnic nationalism that was a feature of the post-exilic period mm. and a reminder of the... Um, the commitment there, you know, that the nation had made to being inclusive on God's terms, you know, and and and, and being not just about their ethnicity or, or their identity and prideful in that sense um, mm. and exclusionary, um, but being a light to the nations um, through their adherence to Torah. Well, that, wow. that definitely leans into the fact that so far uh, all of these, these megalot books have been potentially seen as political commentary uh, arguments against, you know, embedded power structures. So maybe that's uh, that's why they're connected together like this too. I don't know. What better way to seal off a polemic against Ezra and Nehemiah than with a genealogy saying that King David and ultimately Jesus came from a, you know, foreign yeah. party? Mm, zing. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's well, good. I hadn't thought about that. I, I like that. Yeah. I, I that, read that yeah. about wraps up the introductory things. So uh, we'll take a short break and then we'll... Um, Dig into the text. Well, let's jump into the first chapter, jump into the text. Uh, We've already kind of covered a little bit of this uh, as we started off. Uh, In the days of the judges, there's a famine in the land and a family from Bethlehem in Judah moves to Moab. So we get a kind of cast of characters uh, instantly um, introduced and then we kill off most of them in the in really the the first paragraph so we have, it doesn't take long there's no it's not no. it's not tolkien-esque right the, no. the scene setting is minimal and you jump straight into the action i have almost no kind of sympathy or personal connection with the the men who are about to die so we have elimelech and his wife naomi and then her two sons marlon and killian and we meet that they have wives, uh, Orpa and Ruth. Yeah, eventually. Um, Although I don't, I think I've never noticed this until I read this um, just in preparation of this episode. But I think they don't get married until after Elimelech dies. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. But it's just, it just goes from bad to worse. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, so 
the names are quite interesting they too. Are. Yes, let's talk about the names. Well, so Elimelech um, is, you know, thought to mean God is king. Yep. So a kind of symbol of the beginning faithfulness, I take it, as of this family. So I think we're being encouraged to see this, all, all the negative things that happen to them, not as a judgment. I, I don't think the text levies any particular judgment on them for their actions, for no. their moving. I mean, it's possible that the famine is a judgment on Israel as a whole, the reason why they move. But yeah. for as far as we know, and I think the rabbinic tradition develops this, um, Elimelech is said to be you know, quite an upstanding yeah, guy. Good man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and okay. his name sort of suggests that. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Naomi, again, oh, means nice, name. A nice name. Pleasant, lovely, yes. just, just generally good, just great person. <laughs> for a bit, yeah. Tops. I've actually, I've heard um, probably that counter opinion you were talking about, Chris, um, where not not in the sense that Elimelech himself wasn't a good upstanding guy, but that um, in maybe more of a polemic against the nation of Israel at the time, in the time of the judges, that his name is ironic in the sense that because of the famine afflicting yeah. the land, mm. which was because of their unfaithfulness to Torah, there's lots of passages in Deuteronomy that says, you know, if you're faithful, there will always be the seasonal rains and the harvests and things like that. So a famine is indicative that they're not with um, holding up the law. And so his name kind of becomes ironic for Israel in the sense that although his name means my God is king, um, by the very actions of, you know, not uplifting God as king, he's been forced to remove himself from the land in search of um, food and prosperity. So I've, I've also heard the other side, not necessarily against Elimelech as an individual, because I'm sure he was a great guy to, to some extent, um, but the sense that his name's ironic because he has to leave Israel, even though that's the land of the king. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so yeah, Naomi, pleasant one. Uh, then we get Marlon, Marlon and Killian. Killian. Yeah, not, 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 your kids, not so nice for them. So <laughs> Marlon uh, means something like weak or sickly, sickly. sickness. Yeah, sort of. not great. And then Killian is a bit, a bit ambiguous, but something potentially around you know finish and well potentially de- annihilation, annihilation, <laughs> wasting death away, death or destruction, failing, yeah. Yeah. being spent. Um, you yeah, know, which not pleasant. no, not great. Um, so you know, there's some discussion as to whether these names reveal that these are fictionalized characters or not. But I would point out that's a pretty Western perspective. Yeah, and there are a lot of cultures that even to today name their children. Um, sounds potentially inauspiciously, but it was because of the sort of cultural the events that were happening around them. Yeah, yeah. very biblical too. Mm-hmm. Isaiah's kids. I mean, it's coming. Mm. It's coming back more into fashion these days, especially in the church, all these millennials having kids and the paragraphs of, you know, what their names mean and all that sort of thing. I don't say that. I don't that say that. That sounded a bit targeted, Chris. No, I don't say that as put down. I will probably do the same well, thing. Yeah, as someone who's uh, <laughs> potential, yeah, who's looking down the barrel of having to choose names. It's it's uh, it's beautiful, some of the uh, stuff that... I'm hoping that you're penning your uh, epistle come up with. now. Yeah, yeah. no, it's great. <laughs> it's good. Well, I look forward to its revelation. Uh, and then you get to Ruth and Orpah. So Orpah, uh, from what I could tell, it's derived from a male name, which means like the nape of the neck back or the, the mane <laughs> of like a horse or a lion, like the hair on the back of your neck, uh, which Imagine is Imagine being called back of the neck. <laughs> So, you do um, know that this was the name that Oprah was supposed to be named. Well, this is this, I, I didn't get to do my um, Snopes check to see if this is an urban myth, but allegedly, allegedly. it was a, t- as a spelling mistake on the birth certificate. Is that, she was is meant that, to be Oprah. Is that actually true? Well, I don't, Why don't well, you go and check? Okay. But that's that's what I've always heard. I have okay. too. Oprah, so. if you're listening and you want to come on the show. <laughs> what do you mean if you're listening? <laughs> and you want to tell us the truth about this matter, feel free to come on. Just let me know. We've got a pretty full schedule. We'll have to book you in. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> but then Ruth, uh, I, I read that it means friendship. 
Yeah, um, friendship or comforter yeah. um, or even potentially like one who satisfies. Mm. Very nice again. Companion, friend. Yeah. Mm. And then the way that these names, particularly the children and the wives, um, you know, link to how they play in the story um, is, you know, pretty appropriate. So Marlon and Killian, they die, mm-hmm. you know, unsurprisingly. And I think particularly with Killian being annihilated, destroyed, being spent, also representative of the idea that this family line is mm. now at risk of going extinct because the father is dead and the two male sons are dead and uh, they're in pretty dire straits. Um, Orpa, um, back of the neck, could be reflective of the fact that she goes away from oh, yeah. Ruth and Naomi sure. and returns to her home uh, right. hometown. Well, yeah. Let's jump into that because that's kind of the first narrative turn where we yeah. kind of – the it, it expects – we expect the result to be, okay, Naomi's left with nothing and these two daughters-in-law – She'll return, they'll stay because they'll stay with their people. And this is the first big kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? Orpah decides to return, but then Naomi makes this declaration of kind of fidelity to Naomi for really no apparent reason. We don't really know why. Yeah, well, so Naomi actually told both of them to go back yeah. home. I mean, she's basically thinking, well, she's heard that Israel is no longer in famine, so she's going back to, you know, try and restart her life. But as far as she's concerned... And it seems as though she genuinely cares for these two women. Mm. They have no prospects going back there. Not only they're foreigners, um, but, you know, they've been married before. There's no one else in the immediate family to marry them again in what's called, a you know, a leveret marriage, which we'll, we'll get to later. She so, even says, yeah. you know, I could have more children, but you'd have to wait like a long time, at least 15, if not, you know, older years yeah. um, before you'd get to marry them, which is not really going to work out for you. <laughs> she's quite practical. Like it's, she plays that beautiful role of like the mother-in-law, particularly in that Jewish culture. If you ever watch like Fiddler on the Roof or that kind of thing, the matchmaker, she's like, even if I had a husband this night, mm. <laughs> you would have to wait a long time for my children <laughs> to be old enough to marry. Like it's, yeah. it's she's so pragmatic. So she basically says, go back to your homes, go back to your families, um, find another husband and have a better life, basically. And yeah, Orpa says, all right. I mean, she's not. She's upset about yeah. it. It's yeah. a tough have a, decision. They have a touching moment, at least. They yeah. do, but she does return. Uh, and and Ruth, yeah, so they lift up their voices and they wept at yeah. this point. Um, Ruth, on the other hand, doesn't. No, Ruth clings. She to clings. Naomi. Can we the, get this this kind of maybe Alex? You can talk yeah. us through this first kind of declaration that starts to give us a hint of there's something more going on behind the scenes. Yes, I thought this is one to read out because it's probably one of the verses you've heard before from Ruth. Um, verse 16 in chapter 1, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Remember, she's a Moabitess. Mm. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of people describe this as Ruth's you know, conversion moment or... Um, at the very least, Re- yeah, regeneration, it's, it's, yeah, regeneration moment, moment mm. a, a turning yeah. point in the narrative where a decisive decision is made, and you know, not for the least a controversial one in the sense that she's a foreigner. So, and and it's also kind of nice as I stumble over my <laughs> weird vowel sounds. <laughs> um, it's nice too that quite often in biblical narrative we don't get a lot of the behind the scenes motivation mm. of the the main players in the narrative. But uh, verse eighteen is just this nice little for me little Easter egg in there. It says, "And Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more." So really start to get this sense that Ruth isn't just a kind of a a, a lovely flower that is just worn you know by Naomi, and she's yeah. just the pretty girl that she rolls into town with to try and kind of 
you know, fill the larder and, and cover her. I read one piece of commentary that said that potentially the the meaning is that Naomi didn't speak to her the entire trip back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a bit harsh. <laughs> Which I think is probably a stretch, but, well, but it's quite funny. As we see in the very next moment, um, Naomi is also uh, given to potential flights of drama <laughs> in, when she gets back and kind of starts <laughs> to examine her situation. Because, yeah, they arrive back into into Israel, into back to Bethlehem, and there's nothing left. The whole It says uh, in verse 19, the whole town was stirred because of this controversy, this, mm. the fact that a Moabite has come back with poor old Naomi and she didn't bring back any of her men. So the, this would happen in that people would leave because of famines, but um, in Torah, you know, the, the land is enshrined that the owners are allowed to come back and take possession of it, as you talked about uh, earlier, Chris, the Leverite marriage, which again is going to come later. But you know, just the fact that families owned land and even if you had to sell your land because of financial hardship, you could in the year of back. Jubilee, mm, there was yeah. a time of redemption where the land still belonged to that family. You couldn't ever take it away. So um, this is quite controversial in the middle of chapter one, just towards the end where they return and they're going, oh, is that Naomi? And her wonderful yeah. line is, no, don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm now called Mara yeah. because my life has become so bitter. So it's a, I get this very melodramatic moment. It's probably not melodramatic. It's probably legitimately quite hard Traumatic. for her. But it does come across on the page almost like that theatrical moment mm. where she's making this declaration to everyone who will listen. Yeah. You, know, and it, you don't know me. And whether or not she, uh, you know, actually – feels this or thinks this, you know, in terms of complete theology, she certainly expresses in this moment this this grief um, of this apparent abandonment she feels mm. by God that um, all that she had has been taken away from her and that she is so empty. And that, you know, even that word, Mara, meaning bidness, um, for me, you know, it, it links back to the, the Passover uh, meal and the bitter herbs um, that True. are eaten. The maror. The maror, yeah. Mm. Um to remind Israel of the suffering that they had experienced before uh, God redeemed them. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, one. One a lecturer once said to me, or said to the entire class, one of the most profound things that you know anyone's ever said about Scripture, and that is nothing in Scripture suggests that you're not allowed to be angry with God. And this is yeah. one of those moments of just genuine emotion. Um, where everything that she's been through just kind of pours out of her mm. and is just left to sit there for a time. Mm. Yeah, well, she does directly attribute her current state to the Almighty. So he's, yes. he's handled, he's dealt with me bitterly. Mm. So, yeah. A lot of commentaries I read were very, very defensive of Naomi. And I, from the text, I at least struggle to see how they, you know, were that defensive in the sense that they were saying Naomi came back bitter, but. At her heart, she was she was repentant, and she she wasn't really bitter. And literally, every like I read like four commentaries, and they all said that. And I was like, I, I don't I, think we can tell that. In I'm that not moment. sure you can really glean that from the text. It's because glean, I think glean. Yeah. Do you see that? That's, yeah. a, that's a foreshadowing. That whole thing was just, <laughs> so I could say that. No, but um, I, I did want to point out. I did read one commentary which I thought hit the nail on the head in the sense that Naomi is actually like melodramatic is a bit is a good word here because I mean she's. She's not very thankful for Ruth at this point of the story. She she says, well, firstly, she changes her name to bitterness, which is names have meaning in this text, obviously. Mm. And then she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Um, and poor Ruth, who's on her heels walking back with her, um, is, is returning with her. And I feel like, you know, Naomi's just the slightest. I know she's gone through some tough times, but 
Um, and she also withholds a bit of information from Ruth as we get into the next chapter mm. as well. Um, Ruth is a bit of an afterthought, at least from my reading of the text here to Naomi. Mm. Yeah, see, I think I disagree. I think it's more a recognition that, you know, the, the reason why she told the two women to go home in the first place is that she recognizes that yeah. prospects are next mm. to nil. Mm. Um, whether or not she's grateful for her daughter-in-law remaining with her, and, I, you know, maybe she's not even an emotional state to to be thinking on those lines, but I think that's speculation. Um, Whether or not that is the case, she recognizes that the emptiness is real because, you know, if you're just thinking about it logically, there is no reason why her prospects have, should improve. Yeah, because Naomi's with her. Uh, Just just because Ruth is with her. Um, Yes, they have maybe emotional support for each other, but what does that mean in a time and in a place where... um, you know, as this chapter sets out, women are totally dependent socially and 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 structurally on the decisions and the protection of men. Mm. Um, this is this is an outlier almost that these women are left to make to the decisions for themselves mm. um, because the men in their lives have been totally wiped out. Um, you know, it's unusual. Um, the fact that they even make that Ruth makes this declaration of commitment to her. Um, would strike, I think, the audience as as odd because w- w- women and, and women together, they might be friends, but like their, their relationships don't mean much. Surely, like the the position of a woman a woman in society is in relation to the men, whether it's her father, whether it's her brother, whether it's her husband, or any other kind of protector or master. That's what is supposed to give her identity in this culture. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, her expression of of despair is in part a reflection of of that lack. Um, and the fact that there is there is no other direction for her to turn at this stage. And on that, there's also no state support for these guys no. either. Like, well, well, uh, no, uh, well I mean, a little that. bit in the law, but it's not like today we where... We did mention gleaning, but we'll come yes, to that. Yes, yeah. uh, yes, okay, that's true. But there's no overarching, you know, party. Maybe there's an overarching law that helps out a bit, but there's no, you know, benefits or anything there's that no, they can... There's no enforcement yes, of exactly. such yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, okay, just... To step back from this a little bit, let, let let's try and I could be overplaying this completely, but I just want to throw this out to you as I've just been kind of reflecting on this. So uh, there is the the earlier, so a few verses earlier than when Naomi has her moment where she says the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. Um, she has already used the word bitter, and it's bitter to her that her daughters-in-law have been put in this position. Um, the theme of there being a lack of husbands for the wives does directly dovetail off the back of Judges. So we have this whole scene with the Benjaminites and the fighting with the rest of Israel. There's not enough wives. There's this whole kind of constructed environment where they're allowed to come and take wives. And there's actually the mention of being people weeping bitterly because of this situation they find themselves in. We know that from the the Hebrew Bible structure that Ruth doesn't sit with Judges in the the book, in the scrolls. It's Mm. significantly separated, yet it is quite clearly placed into that time and would be a subsequent reading to that. I wonder also kind of in the meta-narrative whether we're really trying to draw together the story that, hey, this is a situation where this is the current state of Israel. We've already seen that in the high level and now we're getting down to a personal level. And so they're planting into the text really clear kind of quite Tim Mackey hyperlinks back to the, the other narrative to go, okay, pay attention because that went poorly, but God's going to do something positive here. Yeah. 
Because I mean, the, even the, the idea of bitterness throws back to the wilderness wanderings about the the lack of provision and the apparent providence of God for the people when the water is bitter, uh, when they strike the rock and it all goes poorly, you know, all of that stuff. So there's a lot of kind of interconnected language which potentially is drawing us into looking at it in that context. I don't know. I don't know if you've even thought about that, but it's just kind of yeah, riffing think, off that idea. Well, I think that's that's probably part of it. And I mean, to go back again to um, you know this issue and well, why why is the lack of husbands so so distressing? Um, and this idea of needing to maintain your family legacy and your connection specifically to land mm. um, and this um, you know deep connection on a tribal level on a family level on a national level that Israel has to the land that God promises them um, you know I think too mirrors potentially the state um, mm. of where Israel finds itself in this judges period you know that um, they are at risk of severing their mm. own legacy because of their lack of faithfulness um, to God and because of the consequences that are coming from their actions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and just I don't know whether which is, a, which is the cart and which is the horse and which yeah. one you play first, but this idea of land and family legacy is just so wrapped up in this story. Um, well, I mean, and that's like, you know, um, again, when I was you know, doing my, my studies, the, the idea that the themes of the Torah are that they're, family or descendants, the blessing of God and land, mm. and they're the markers of the covenant. Mm. Of course, we're in this transition, this liminal period where it's no longer that patriarchal time where these key uh, leaders of the tribe of Israel have died off. Now we're decentralized. Now we're lost. We don't know if the Torah is still the covenant marker. We have, probably don't even have the Torah. We're fairly sure we don't have the Torah formalized at this point. There's no kind of single central repository of the practices and the preaching of the law. It's kind of, as we read earlier, everyone does as they see fit in their own eyes. And so we have this, like, is this still even a thing now? Like, this is like the crisis moment for the people of God. Like, is that true? Will that be true? What will happen? These judges aren't unifying us. It's not sticking. What's going to happen? Yeah. It's like it's kind of like the the Middle Ages, like the Dark Ages, like in the it sense is, that yeah. you know God used to appear to them theophanically and through like like Moses as a prophet or as a lawgiver, and it was very clear what was you know what was what uh, in the Torah. And then in this little period um, where everyone's doing as they see fit and judges before Samuel comes along and like is kind of the first of those prophets to come back and speak on behalf of God again. There's like this little dark kind of period where it's like, well, what's going on? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? It's hard to tell. Yeah. Mm. Um, probably the only other thing I want to dig into a little bit more deeply is Ruth's conversion commitment mm. and what exactly it is and means. I mean, there's been there's a little bit of debate as to how much she even knew about this God Yahweh. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought that having been married to two Israelites for ten years, sorry, she wasn't married to two of them; she was married to one of the two. <laughs> That would be distinctly non-Israelite. For 10 years. Um, no, yeah, and we did Song of Songs last week. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, Chris. You're off your game today, Alice. Come <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah. Focus, focus with me. Sorry. <laughs> she would have known of Yahweh. And the, the mm. way, again, when we talk about how women were treated almost effectively as property in some contexts, you know, if you marry into a family uh, as a woman, you're expected to take the gods of, of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would have thought she would have known enough to know ex- roughly what worship of Yahweh entailed, um, you know, maybe some of the basics of the history and um, all that sort of stuff. But um, there are some have argued that she didn't know much and she was committing to him basically as an extension of her commitment to uh, to Naomi Mm. without knowing too much of what it entailed. But the rabbinic tradition that develops around the book of Ruth 
actually puts her forward as kind of this model proselyte, um, mm. you know, the perfect example of a, of a good conversion to Judaism yeah. um, that she, uh, and, you know, it fleshes out the story as the Targum often does by adding extra little yeah. bits in. But it, it does it does neatly <laughs> dovetail it into the kind of political polemic uh, approach to Ruth, yeah. which is, of course, I'm assuming very popular in the rabbinical time as all the, the post-exilic corrections come in. Yeah, yeah, but it also dovetails with, as you said, the situation of Israel during the yeah. Judges. Here is this people who, um, you know, through this downward cycle, as you said, uh, Alex, are moving steadily away from God. And on the other hand, this foreigner, this Moabites, yeah. um, demonstrating this wonderful, exceptional almost um, display of loyalty and allegiance to Yahweh that kind of shames the rest of Israel mm. by how comparatively terrible they're doing mm. um, at keeping that covenant. Yeah. Yes, that is definitely there. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think, yeah, I, I think it's it's hard because we want to look for those kind of high-level kind of meta-narrative elements and all that kind of stuff. However, you don't want to try and read so much into the text that it does it damage. It's, it's hard to say. And we, we don't really get that motivation for Ruth apart from her determination. So I think it's completely feasible to think that she's a model proselyte. Yeah. But also completely feasible that she's potentially going, oh, I don't have any other options here, so I'm out. It's true. But I think mm. one, of the follow on, one of the follow-on readings is then that the reason um, God through his providence shows her so much favor is because of yeah. this, you know, absolute you know, holistic conversion that she undertakes. Mm. There's certainly a little biblical precedent and throughout the rest of the narrative into the New Testament as well, where when God's, you know, meant to be faithful people um, don't live up to, you know, that faith. It's often a foreigner or the the unlikely party who, you know, is the ironic um counterpart mm. or comparison juxtaposition that's what i was looking yeah, for yeah. like it's the ancient good samaritan yeah you know? exactly yeah. i was going to say it's it's the good samaritan but the the ancient version so yeah yeah you you took my line sorry that's not okay do you want to say it again and yeah give it so all it's, to you? it's almost like the ancient good samaritan yeah. <laughs> wow yeah yeah, yeah. 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 amen yeah. preach yeah. it amen. brother yeah that's yeah, good that's a good word hallelujah um, so right, we finished on. chapter one with uh the transition statement and they came to bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest fade to black <laughs> music fades out Fade up on the second act. The set has changed a bit on the yep. stage, yeah. Um, so we get this idea of um, a near relative of Naomi's family, a near relative of Elimelech, a worthy man, which is important, of uh, Elimelech's clan whose name is Boaz. Interesting. New player on the scene. In Ooh. strength. Ooh. That's what his name means. Just mm. you know, we've been saying what everyone's name means. Yeah. True. Yeah. No, thank you. I picked that up. That's like right. Mighty. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, correct, my, correct me if I'm wrong, and we may have to get this edited out if I am wrong. So preserve <laughs> my uh, good record. Uh, name of one of the pillars at the front of the temple, right? I can't answer mm. that. Oh. Boaz and that rings a bell. Joaquin, something like that. I think. Joaquin, I, Joaquin. I know. Yes. Yeah. Like I think Boaz Phoenix. is yeah. strengthened. Strengthened Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> It's a soft J, I think, like <laughs> yogging, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm fairly sure Alex is doing the research. He's fact checking me right I'm just now. Just typing it up. But Jackie I'm and sure. Boaz. Yeah. Yes. Boom. There you go. There you so, go. Yeah. One King Seven, if you're interested. There you go. So, yep. Not the first, not all the last time we see the name Boaz. Yeah. Mm. There you go. So, Boaz. Very strength. good. Strength to hold up the temple. Right. We didn't yeah. have a roof, but that's okay. That's true. <laughs> it didn't, it was open. The pillars didn't have a roof. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> so, yeah. Who is Boaz? I mean, he's. Uh... <laughs> 
a good do. We have to publish a retraction of Alex's <laughs> uh, state today. I'm sorry. If you're listening, the, he the had the texture of the Solomonic Temple wrong. I know. Let's cut that out. If you're listening, Alex had a 1 a.m. cheat. Uh, he linked up with America for his studies. Yeah, so sorry, he's, everyone. He's running on empty. He's running on sorry, fumes. Guys. He's felt like he's been dealt with bitterly, but he's going to make it through. <laughs> Call me Mara. Sorry, Chris. Take us back. I can't even remember where I was going. Oh, Boaz, who yes. is this guy? Yeah. I mean, so it, close relative. It's not mentioned yet, or it's mentioned later in the chapter, but I feel like this is priming the audience for our kinsman redeemer yes. or something along these True. lines. Um, member of the family. This idea of him being, what is it, a worthy man or mm-hmm. a man of standing yep. Um, yep. could mean a couple of different things. Could mean prominent in the community. Um, not, it seems, an elder because there are other elders called into yes. into. Um, the scenario at the, the end. Penultimate of the, scene. Yeah. Um, but certainly a man of some well, a good reputation. Mm. Um, potentially also um, a warrior of some sort, uh, a fighter or a member of the military, or at least in some capacity. Um, that's just one interpretation mm. that I came across. But um, also suggested later on in the book that he's somewhat older. Mm. Um, and it's also implied, although it's not explicitly stated, that he's not married. Yes. Um, and why that is, is the subject of great conjecture. Um, and I'm sure. PhDs, <laughs> left and right. Yeah. Oh, there was, you know, maybe that he's ugly. Maybe he's, a, maybe too, he's yeah. a widower, could be queer, any number of things. Wow, really? But of course, PhD, com- fodder, you're right. All complete speculation. Yeah, it, says, it literally says nothing about no. Boaz's previous state to the moment we meet him in Chapter 2. No. Yeah. So... We just know that he's a good guy and uh, Naomi's like, he's one of our crew, go, he will make sure you get looked after. So we get this idea that uh, Ruth, kind of to not uh, correct you, but kind of subtly correct you, Alex, this is the ancient version of social welfare in that um, there's this idea that Ruth is going to go and glean at the fields of Boaz. Boaz, because he's a family member and say he'll be nice to you. He won't run you off. But She doesn't know that yet, to be fair. No, well, Naomi does and she directs her there. But gleaning is still, uh, again, one of the technical terms that um, we I've kind of alluded to at the start of the podcast, gleaning is a means by which the the ancient uh, communities would allow those who were without, so widows, orphans, those who were, um, you know, down on their luck, poor, would be able to find enough food to live. now, if you guys want to jump in, do, but I, I've got a bit on this. No, uh, the One of the understandings, and this is uh, not universally adopted, but the, uh, the, the fields would be harvested in circular patterns uh, and the fields were often yes, not this, circular. Yeah. Yeah. They were square and so they would circle. They would uh, harvest in a circular pattern right from the centre to the edges, but as soon as they hit the edges, they stop and so you get these four corners of the paddock that they, the, the widow, the orphan, the poor could come and harvest themselves. Uh, they had to collect it themselves, but they could come and get grain from the harvest in order to provide for themselves when they had no other means. And so gleaning was that kind of opportunity for people who had nothing to find something. Mm. And this gleaning is is in the, the law. It's yes, in the Torah. Exactly I think right. the passage is Leviticus. Leviticus 19. 19 and yeah. also, is it specifically uh, mentioned the circles there? I think it's kind of it's certainly it's circle. mentions not gleaning to the edge of a field. Yeah. And I think the Hebrew where you is perhaps some people have in, as have translated or interpreted as cutting corners. Yeah. Or like cutting corners. Don't cut corners, your corners. Don't cut yeah. your corners. So yeah. that's why the circle um, 
um, thing has come up. It's the yeah. neatest picture of it in yes. my mind. Yeah. I think it's also mentioned in Leviticus 23 and then reiterated in uh, Deuteronomy 24 as well. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's certainly well established. Gleaning is, yeah, as a, yeah. As a process um, and a practice, yeah. Yeah, and I d- did you mention this, but also picking up the bits that accidentally got dropped I didn't mention, but that's well. also yeah. uh, in, in the text of Ruth, it talks about it that if, if you told a bale, to, don't pick it up. <laughs> and if it falls apart, you don't yeah. pick it up. You just yeah. let the people come and take it. Yeah. Yep. Um, so... Ruth, uh, Naomi basically says to Ruth, um, why don't you go out into the fields and do this for us? Because they were obviously starving. They don't uh, have much. They have no means. No means. Um, and so she goes out and it just turns out that the field she ends up in is one that belongs to this fella. What a coincidence. Boaz. What? And uh, Boaz notices her across the way. In fact, asks his servant, who's that young lady? <laughs> and, and Boaz in... In his greeting just before that also says, the Lord be with you, um, which gives an indication that he's a godly man as well, mm. is uh, what uh, I read sorry, a lot yes, of commentaries. Ahead, yeah. No, that's right. No, that's, that was just a passing note. Go on. So interesting. I, um, I Growing up as one particular Bible teacher that I listened to quite a lot of, which I generally would disagree with him now on a lot of his uh, understandings of the larger narrative of Scripture, but he always made this interesting comment that stuck with me, um, that he said, anytime you see an unnamed servant in the Old Testament, it's somewhat typological of the Holy Spirit, mm. kind of engineering things behind the scenes. Okay. So I, thought, I don't necessarily agree literally that it is that, but we get this unnamed servant who connects the dots for Boaz, which is just interesting. The agent of God at work in an unnamed way is always quite interesting I it think. is yeah well so, yeah. so this the guy uh, uh, my translation says he's the foreman of the the workers of the farm points out that she's the Moabites points out that she's related to Naomi points out that she's been working really hard she only took one break in the day but otherwise she's been working hard gleaning for herself and for Naomi um, and so then Boaz goes over to her perhaps in another indication of the age difference he refers to her as daughter um, mm. But it, it's a very mm. polite terminology. Yes. See our previous discussion on Song of Songs with the use of familial terms in uh, relationships. Yeah, um, and says, um, oh, well, keep keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Um, don't go to any other fields. I'll make sure that uh, my men don't bother you. There's kind of an implication that... It was a risky undertaking. Risky undertaking yeah, for a single a woman yep. who is a foreigner to be in a field with a bunch of other men who may not be totally above board. Um but um, you can also have um, some food and water as well. Mm. Um, and the, she asks, well, why, why, why are you doing this to me? I am a foreigner. And he responds to her that he knows what that she's done for Naomi. Um, and this is another mention of that term, hesed. Um, he sees the, the kindness, the faithfulness, the love that she's shown for someone else. And he, as a response, wants to show that to her. Yeah, Alex, would you read verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2? I think that sums it up yeah. nicely. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Mm. Interesting, and that last little phrase is important for the next chapter. Yes, we'll see that the under the wings come up again, definitely. Yes. I, I do. It's 
wonderfully satisfying when you take the time to read through this pretty closely to the text mm. and pay attention to interesting phrases like that. Like there's this beautiful kind of layering, almost like a you know the the iris of a camera where each of the leaves leans on the previous one and onto the next one. Each of these movements really kind of predicts what's going to happen next if you're looking for it, which is so satisfying at every level reading it. Yeah. I was going to bring up those verses regardless, so I'm glad you did, Chris. It seems that Ruth has built up at least some sort of reputation for herself, um, which is striking in the sense that she is a Moabitess. Like, mm. It's not something you'd expect for someone the community's never known before. Like At least they know who Naomi is because um, she left and then she came back. Um, but for a foreign woman to come back and then to build up a reputation of Hesed, of you know showing loyal love um, to Naomi um, is, is quite a statement from Boaz to say that Mm. this is the way the community recognizes you. And I think throughout the rest of the book, he actually goes to a few lengths to protect that reputation as well. Um, And through the ultimate narrative of the book that happens. Um, And for me, it's also a little bit, sorry, I I know I've been a bit harsh on Naomi this whole time, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I will continue to be. (laughs) Objection uh, sustained. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. I'll allow. Uh, Okay, great. Um, Like we were just talking about before with the good Samaritan thing in the way that, uh, Naomi is, you know, takes like the lower seat here in the sense that she's grieved and she's bitter. Um, the unlikely source of the foreigner is the one who goes, you know, I, your God will be my God. And then she's taking the place of the Hesed and the loving kindness. Whereas in chapter one, um, when they're returning, Naomi promises to Ruth, um, may you find rest. And that word is Hesed. Um, with your husbands when we get there. so And now Ruth kind of takes on that role and is the one who's showing it to Naomi. It's interesting. Mm. Mm. So Ruth and Boaz share a meal together, which I think is just another indication of Boaz's, you know, magnanimity. His hesed, you know, that he he's effectively in that culture um, doing what Jesus did and eating with the, the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized mm. and, um, you know, would not have been looked upon kindly by some in the community. Um, and then... Ultimately, she goes back out to glean and he directs his workers to drop a little bit extra yes. on the ground um, and Sneaky. not to be mean to her, not to embarrass her. Just well, She can even go and take it just from the, the actual bundled up yeah. <laughs> harvest that's already prepared. Like, yeah, Good gig if you can get it. Yeah, To the point where she takes home, depending on how you read it, somewhere up to about 20 litres worth of mm. kind of uh, grain, like not just the stalks and everything. She she um no, she threshes she it. She threshes out. it is yeah. what I'm looking for. She threshes it and takes home a good amount. <laughs> like, that's a lot. Which prompts so. Naomi to say where to get <laughs> all this stuff. Go? <laughs> and so she mentions that she was in the field of Boaz and Naomi says, Ah, oh, what a lovely man Boaz is <laughs> and then drops he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Boom. So, so this is a re- this is a loaded statement that everyone goes. <gasps> dun, dun, hear the, dun. The, the audience going, "What? I didn't even see it coming." <laughs> this is probably the time then to talk about this yes. concept and a related concept, which is connected but not quite the same, but is also melded together in mm. this book. So there's there's two issues at play. First of all, there's this idea of the kinsman redeemer, which is the goel in Hebrew. Mm. And there are a couple of different functions that this person fulfills. I think it's first mentioned in Leviticus 25, potentially, in one context. Um, But then there's a a few other mentions throughout. Yeah. Basically, the kinsman redeemer is a clan member, a close family relative, um, whose role is, I guess, effectively to recover losses on behalf of the yeah. family or mm. on behalf of the clan. And that's in a 
bunch of different contexts. It's in economic terms. So if property mm-hmm. is at risk of falling outside the family, as you mentioned previously with the, the system of redemption that was in place, the kinsman redeemer could purchase it back to ensure mm-hmm. it stayed within the clan and within the family. And there's all sorts of laws about how close to a year of restoration or jubilee it is and how yep. much you should charge for that if you have to sell it and yep. all that kind of stuff. Um, Particularly if the owner was taken, had to put themselves into slavery for financial hardship and things like that. Yeah. Um, I think the kinsman redeemer can also be responsible for ensuring that justice is done within the clan yes. or to the clan, especially if there's issues of damaged reputation. Yes. They can mm. take on responsibility for restoring that. Uh, and then the third one is this idea of the Goel Hadam, the mm. Avenger of Blood. But it's all tied up in the same concept. As soon as you drop that phrase, everyone's going, ooh, mm. what's, what could happen next? Like just about anything could happen. So yeah. we know that we're probably going to go well probably for Naomi and Ruth because she's got nothing, Naomi's got nothing, Boaz is the means by which she can get back property and standing mm-hmm. and legacy, you know, descendants, all that kind of stuff. As far as we're Ooh. aware, there's no murder that's occurred that Not, needs yeah, avenging. No. But. It was just a potential responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe talk about the Leverite marriage part first because I think we can come back to the kinsman redeemer as we yeah. move through the story because this is the significant part in the initial kind of negotiations of what's going to happen in Chapter 3. Yeah, so it seems, and there's some debate about this, but it seems that this is actually a separate concept that's also mentioned in Scripture, but it does it is tied up quite closely to the point that the kinsman redeemer and the Levia can be the same person. Mm. But the concept of a leveret marriage, I think it comes from uh, primarily Deuteronomy 25, yeah. is where, um, as with um, Naomi's family, uh, there's been a husband and a wife and the husband dies. In order to... Uh, ensure that the family name, the the lineage carries on and the inheritance for property remains within that immediate family, it falls to um, a close adult male relative, which is usually a brother, to then marry the widow uh, and conceive and have children who are then attributed in a sort of legal fiction to um, the name or to to the lineage of the 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 person who's died. Um, It's really interesting the way it plays out because the Bible talks about a number of these marriages where in terms of the purpose of the inheritance and the legal fiction, yes, the, the child belongs to the deceased, but in terms of naming convention and in genealogy, <laughs> it's often the actual biological father that's named. Um, Correct. So yeah. it's it's a this legal fiction is not sort of all-encompassing. It's not like people are just mm. pulling the wool over their eyes and, it, it, you know, not acknowledging reality. It's a way, and I, I read what seems to come out is that it really is primarily a way to ensure that the inheritance and legacy remains within the immediate family and does not fall away. Because correct me if I'm wrong, we don't actually know which of the two deceased sons Ruth was married to. Uh, I'm pretty sure it just says they had two sons and they had two daughters who were married to them. Um, And so we don't even know which one. And when we get to the genealogy at the end, None of them show up. Elimelech's not even in there. It's Boaz's line. So there is a kind of a grafting in there. It does say in chapter 4, verse 10, when when Boaz makes his big declaration, he calls her Ruth. um, The the widow of Marlon, you're right. Yeah, Moabites, the widow of Marlon. Spoilers. Which (laughs) possibly, although not necessarily, means that Marlon was the older sibling Mm -hmm. um, because if there's inheritance issues, then he would have been first in line. Also, the Annihilation guy probably wouldn't get any legacy. 
He's goes finished. With the name. Yes, yeah, yeah, finished. Yes. So those are the two important concepts mm. that Kinsman Redeemer being mentioned explicitly here, um, but that I think the audience would definitely have had in mind when they were reading through what's going on. It's definitely that 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 marriage arrangement is definitely within the scope of the Kinsman Redeemer. Like that's definitely part of it, but it has another technical name with that. You know, it's um yeah, and the um I mean this is the kind of marriage that Naomi was talking about in the beginning of the book, right? When she says, "I could have more sons," that could mm. be sort yes, of these yeah. levias for mm. you to make sure the inheritance comes about. But you can have to wait for that. Mm. So should we, should we talk briefly about the uh, this kind of side topic, which is I find so fascinating but might be a bit of a, a rabbit warren, is the the other side of the Goel, the Goel Hadam, the, the avenger of the blood. Because mm-hmm. I think for me this is where it starts to lean into the typology uh, of of Jesus coming later on, so the the flip side of the kinsman redeemer was that if someone was killed and it was found by the people making the assessment that it was murder, then this near kinsman would also be responsible for avenging the spilt blood of their relative, and so um, once the murderer is convicted, the, the near kinsman, the avenger of the blood, would be appointed. And they were able to take the life of that person in that kind of, mm. uh, is it Lex Talonis, the eye Lex Talionis. Yeah, yeah. Talionis, sorry. My Latin's shocking. <laughs> um, and so uh, there was that was set up that that's how justice would be served. However, uh, if the person who was found guilty of murder would get themselves to one of the Levitical cities of refuge, they were then spared judgment and they could live in the city of refuge uh, safely until the death of the current um, high priest, uh, which is interesting given this time and this is a concept which is probably written back into or at least explored following the the full occupation and the establishing of the the, the proper priesthood and its practices when we get to Jerusalem and the temple and all that kind of stuff although those people were at this point at Shiloh uh, operating the tabernacle and so that was still yeah. there and these Levitical cities were appointed at the the conquest the initial conquest coming out of the Torah time and so uh, yes there was this really interesting play that if you're guilty but uh, you manage to find a city of refuge, the high priest's life would protect the guilty party, which I think is quite interesting. And hopefully I won't spell it all out, but it's starting to connect the dots of what this might look like and how this might apply to our lives. But moving right along. I've got some other typological stuff in the book as well, so I think we're going to have a fun end to the episode, aren't we? Beautiful. So that brings us to chapter three, which is sometime later, just says one day, you know, a few days later. Um, but it's <laughs> you seems that French commentary enough time has passed for Naomi to come up with a little bit of a plan, it seems. Um, she says, um, you know, my daughter, Ruth, why should I not try and find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Hmm. So her plan is, effectively, Boaz is about to go out to be winnowing on the threshing floor, basically separating the um, grain uh, from the stalks that have been harvested uh, in this place, which is a flat place where they chuck it up in the air and on the ground and the wind comes and it separates the wheat and the chaff and, well, it's barley, but... Um, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> figuratively. Figuratively. Uh, he's going to be out there doing that tonight with his uh, his um, workers. Why don't you go to him 
And the plan is that once he's tired out, he will be lying down asleep on the threshing floor and Ruth is to go over and to uncover his feet and to lie there Uh-oh. and then no. to see what plays out. Dun, dun, dun. It all sounds quite, you know, suggestive, innocent. doesn't it? Or suggestive but yeah. innocent. It's suggestive but innocent. And that's kind of exactly what I was going to say in the sense that um, yeah, it's, a, not, it's not quite Song of Songs. He's, you know, it's, it's a bit different. Um, but. It? It, it, in some ways, but uh, a couple of things about the uncovering of the feet and being at the feet. I'm sure you guys will have stuff to add as well. Some of the commentaries I read said that it was actually a very practical reason that the feet were uncovered in that it would make Boaz cold. So he would wake up. Like, to be fair, I don't like sleeping with my feet uncovered. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I would probably wake up. So that's one reason I read. And, and the other is the significance of Ruth being at his feet, implying a position of servanthood or of humility. Um, and which what comes next is some sorts of a marriage proposal in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that implied, you know, being down on one knee. It's kind of the same idea here where Ruth is putting herself in a position of submission and servanthood mm. at Baz's feet. It has alternatively been argued that feet is a euphemism. Um, in Hebrew, feet can be used simply to refer to the bottom half of a person's mm. body. And so um, it has been speculated or has been argued that this could mean uh, she's to uncover his private parts. Mm. Um, it also potentially has been argued that it is a euphemism for a sexual act in itself. Yes. Uh, so she's going there to sleep with him. And the reason that's been put forward is that this location, the threshing floor, has a few mm. connotations associated with it. <laughs> In ancient Near Eastern cultures, threshing floor is often a sacred space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some of the pagan cults, particularly the, the cultures that were around Israel fertility at the time, cults. they were yeah. fertility cults. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the threshing floor was the location of orgies, effectively, yeah. sacred sacred yeah. activities. Uh, ritualistic physical acts, which was acts of worship. Encourage the gods. But the Asherah, those kind of uh, ancient. Baal and Asherah. That's right. Yeah. But the sacredness of the threshing floor was maintained in, in Israelite culture because in, uh, I think, Second Second Chronicles 3.1, um, a threshing floor is the location where the temple yes. is ultimately built. Yeah, the threshing built. floor of Aruna, in fact. Yeah. So there are positive <laughs> associations. David Aruna, that's yeah. true. Positive associations, but also some negative ones. Mm. Um, and also... Uh, it was potentially the place where those who had been harvesting and then threshing would actually celebrate then the harvest. And so they would pass Party. around the alcohol. And so they would often be quite inebriated and potentially, yeah. The passage uh, does somewhat suggest that. Yeah. yeah. Prostitutes may visit as well yeah, if so they want to. Boaz has kind of mm. maybe uh, had a few to drink mm-hmm. and has kind of fallen His into spirits a heavy were sleep. merry. An alternative PG um, interpretation from Alex. Uh <laughs> Uh, another typical. reason that, uh, yes, t- typical, as they say, um, this was offen- essentially um, Boaz's bank account in the sense that he was, I, re- I read a lot of commentaries that said mm. he was sleeping like with his to income with, to protect yeah. it. Yeah. Um, probably had a knife under his pillow as well because, you know, it's just winnowed away. Um, he's just got all the valuable barley and separate it from the chaff. It's on the threshing floor. You don't want anyone getting their hands on that, mm. so he's sleeping with it. Imagine the drama in the film version. He's got you know, the loaded pistol under his pillow. <laughs> and then Ruth shows and up. And Ruth shows up. It's like, what's going to happen? <laughs> Definitely building the tension of the narrative. It's great. Uh, and all of this plays into it. And so then uh, she comes uh, and she uncovers his feet. And she lays down there and we get this um, interaction 
So he's startled awake. But, but at midnight he's startled awake. We don't know how long she's been feet lying were cold. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't know how long. Well, don't know what time it was when she arrives, but after she lays down next to his uncovered feet, uh, at midnight he is awoken. There you go. So he asks who's there, who's down the feet, and she identifies herself. And then she says, um, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Interesting, because my translation, ESV, says, spread your wings over me, <laughs> which sounds awfully familiar to what Boaz said dun, dun, dun. And I'm sorry, doing that a lot this time. I know. <laughs> it's so exciting. It's because it's a play. We've got we to be dramatic about it. Yeah. Exit stage left. You, um, know, you know, the villains always had to exit stage left in, in pantomime because... You have a lot of weird you know. knowledge. Well, because like the, the Greek and yeah. I think Latin then for left is... Where did we get the word sinister oh, from? Oh, I did know this. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. the baddies so always went left so everyone could make sure they knew who the yeah. baddies were. Yeah. Because they're always left-handed. Just in case yeah. you're confused. There you go. Anyway, anyway. back on anyway. track. Back the, on track. The under the wings or, you know, spread your wing over me or your garment over me implies some form of marriage proposal. Yeah. Um, definitely in Scripture, God uses this one a lot. The prophets for Israel, um, and Israel is often referred to as God's bride. Uh, there's a passage in Isaiah that I can't quite bring to mind where, you know, um, well, there's lots of passages about being under the wings, but there's a, a specific one where God refers to Israel as his bride with that context as well. Um, so, I don't know. It's well, all kind of potentially connected to, to the yeah. prayer shawl mm. and the tassels, oh, yeah, often referred to as wings on the prayer shawl, which potentially alludes to the chuppah, which is the, the prayer shawl covering over the marriage bed. So, there's all of this kind of entendre and kind of implication that this is all going yes. on in the moment. It's all there. Well, so, I mean, whatever... How, however you interpret, you know, the logistics of how all this is playing out, <laughs> it's clearly provocative in the sense yes. that Ruth is taking the initiative. She is trying to provoke a reaction yeah. out of Boaz. I mean, you could argue she's being manipulative even, but she's trying At to... At least being forward. Forward, yeah. <laughs> Naomi told her to do it. It's okay. She is directly asking him to be, to fulfill through this role of the kinsman protector, um, to become her protector and the security for her and her family and for Naomi as an extension. And it's it's pretty risky for her to be doing this, A, because she's a foreigner, B, because she's a woman coming alone at night to be next to a man at the threshing floor. Mm. Um, and because, um, you know, I think one of the arguments against them, this being a sexual encounter, is the fact that Boaz is described as an upstanding man. Mm. Um, and as an upstanding man adherent to the law, he could he would be within his rights to deal very harshly with her in response to this. Mm. And and this little section here is actually where we get a little bit more insight into why Boaz might be in the situation he is. So his response is lovely. He says, May be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now do not fear. And he says, I'll do all the things that you've asked. And so we get this idea that she is worthy now. And so we see the flip that Ruth has now proven herself worthy in Boaz's depiction. So um, get this nice kind of the, the, the other side of the coin, the other shoe drops, the other side of the chiasm, whatever metaphor you mm-hmm. want to use. The shoe's a good one. I like that. But feet, the whole well, thing. Do you like that? Yeah. I, just, I, I, I was thinking sandal. chapter four. Yeah. yeah. Sandal. <laughs> we get that. Um, but <laughs> we get then another kind of, oh, my goodness, because the audience were thinking, great, this is just so beautiful. And then there's a spanner in the works. Yes. Uh-oh. But it gets very 12. practical. <laughs> there's actually someone else who has more rights than I do in this. 
situation is what he says. There's another yeah. kinsman redeemer more who is closely more related. closely related. Oh, it's like, what <laughs> First a cousin, Bert. Oh, that guy, you know. <laughs> but he effectively says, um, we'll sort that out in the morning. Um, and he says, stay, stay for the night. So she remains there at his feet for the night. She gets up and leaves before anyone's able to recognize her. But before she leaves, he also gives her, is it six, six measures? measures. Interesting. Six measures of grain. Is, and is that the code to Naomi to let her know that there's not seven, there's only six, so this isn't yet complete? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't read that. Oh, I read that. Yeah, okay, it's well, the code to Naomi that because she, yeah. she shares. He gave yeah. me these six measures and she's right. like, oh, don't worry, it's not finished. He'll finish this today. Interesting. It is interesting also to remember that like Boaz and Naomi have not actually spoken at all no. to this point in the book. It's all being done through loaves of barley, potentially. Yeah. Uh, so Significant amounts of barley. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, like, you thought that the bit she bought home the day before was a lot. She comes on the next day, she's like, this is getting her out of hand. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So she does go back to Naomi, tells her what's happened, um, and they wait to see what Boaz does. Mm. So then we, chapter four, cut to the chase. All the action starts happening, and we get the kind of we build up to the final resolution. So this is the penultimate scene. This is the mm-hmm. the crisis that has to be solved. Boaz goes to the gate and sits down, uh, which is kind of a euphemism for he goes and meets with the, the ruling council of the town. Mm. He goes and meets the with the elders and uh, raises his civil matter of <laughs> the people versus. Uh, Cousin Bert, who's in my yes. way. <laughs> so once Cousin Bert, and actually it's interesting the way he's described. So my translation says, come over here, my friend. I read a commentary said that the, the word that's translated, my friend, literally is an absurd little meaningless thing that kind of just means Mr. So-and-so. I read the like, same. You right, yeah. read the same thing, yeah. <laughs> I think it's literally it's Cousin Bert, like we don't know. I don't it's, know if this was the same commentary read, but um, the one I read that said Mr. So-and-so implied that the author wished to demean this friend, like as in Boaz would almost certainly have known his name, but the author chose not to include the name in the sense that because we'll see this man didn't wish to be the kinsman redeemer, so he's being looked down upon by the author. So, so the he irony, refused to give his name. The irony that he refused to intervene to secure legacy yes. means his legacy is lost in the history. Yes. yes. Boaz's name is remembered but not his. Mm. It's sad. So what happens, Chris? Walk us through this uh, the uh, the legal drama. All right, so they sit down and um, Boaz explains the situation very diplomatically but not he doesn't reveal everything. He says, effectively, Naomi's come back from Moab and there's this piece of property that belonged to her husband, Elimelech, that she's now putting up for sale. Now, this is the first time we've heard that, mm. but um, there are a couple of reasons, you know, why that might be. It, it might be that it's been up for sale the whole time um, or it may be that they'd sold it or leased it before they left for Moab um, and so it's effectively been alienated from them already yeah. um, or, you know, they may have, returned um found that they got this piece of property but they're unable to work it because it's just the two of them that's it it's of no practical value to them except as a means of selling to kind of secure a you know a bit of revenue for themselves to get by we don't really know but he says this property is up for sale uh and he says i thought i should bring it to your attention to suggest that you buy it in the presence of all these witnesses um so uh that it will be redeemed um for the people and then he says, but if you won't, then let me know because, um, you know, you have the right, but I'm yeah. next in line and I'll do it if you don't. And Cousin Bert's like, sure. Sounds great. Are you kidding? I'll Property. I'll yeah. take it. How yeah. good. But then Boaz pulls the, but wait, there's, there's more. more. 
On the day you buy the land from Naomi and Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. And all of a sudden, Cuddenbird is not so keen. No, but, oh, hang on a second. But that means that what about my kids? They're going to cut out. They're not going to get the inheritance. That's yeah, not it'll good. Be a competing inheritance. Yeah. A so couple of competing theories. I mean, it may simply be he's not keen on marrying a Moabitess. That's true. Quite possible. It may be that he is already married Very and married, has kids. Yeah. And so there's some speculation that um, the child of this separate line, you know, in terms of that mm. legal fiction we mentioned. Um, would have rights not only to the Elimelech's property, but potentially to the property of the Kinsman Redeemer's estate as well. And so mm. his, um, you know, existing children would have fewer rights. Yes. Um, yep. Yeah, because we get this verse six of chapter four. Basically, he says in my translation, this will impair my inheritance. This is going to have some impact on my estate that I have been working towards of some yeah. type. Yeah. So it's clear that the Kinsman Redeemer's this other guy. Cousin Bert, his motivation, while he was willing to fulfill the responsibility, uh, his motivation was primarily for his own gain and yes. not for the benefit of Naomi or, or of mm. Ruth. So then that means he says, okay, fine, I'm out, you have it. And Boaz is like, yes. Nice. Fist pump in the air. Work to plan. Yeah. Yep. And so then we get this interesting custom. So, Alex, tell us about the uh, the the people of the unsandled. <laughs> The unsandled people, yeah. So I read verse 7, kind of gives you a bit of context. Now in earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, so they've agreed on it, um, Boaz is going to be the redeemer. One party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Uh, now, that is indeed true. I think it's Deuteronomy 24 or 25 um, explains this custom. And basically the idea is in the specific case of a kinsman redeemer, when the the closest relative refuses to take the widow um, and continue their line, um, it is that is confirmed with the transfer of a sandal. Um, and what doesn't happen in this chapter, but does happen in the stipulations in Deuteronomy, is that the widow is then entitled to spit <laughs> at, at the closest relative who has refused that. Now we don't get that episode, perhaps because Ruth has been betrayed with such a great reputation. Maybe the author didn't want to include the spitting bit, but uh, that, that's part of it. And people have put forward theories as to whether this has got some typological meanings where like the gospel being like the, the mm. sandals of truth and stuff like that. Um, but really I'm, it's just, it's Israelite custom. Yeah. I vaguely remember there being a sandal in um, the life of Brian that was left as a sign, vague memory. I don't think it's connected to that. What I, I also unlikely. do remember though is that um, there was also part of the custom was it supposed to they put their hand under the thigh of the other yeah. party as they swear the, mm. the legal proceedings. So, mm. It's very odd, yes. isn't it? Yeah, it's very <laughs> it's interesting. But the deal is done and uh, yeah. they get married. So uh, uh, just to go back to our previous conversation on those sort of two aspects, the kinsman redeemer and the... The, the avenger of the blood. Yes. Yeah, and the leveret marriage. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yep. Um, yeah, so here clearly the two concepts are being linked. Mm. There are some commentators that say that this is an innovation that's occurred by the time of the late judges period. Um, we don't really know. Certainly, you know, the way Boaz presents it is not challenged by any of the parties there. So clearly they expect that this is the case, that the redeemer of the property also has to marry uh, the, the widow. Um, one commentary I read suggests that this may have become the case because, you know, when a, lev- when a lever at marriage occurs um, and it's just a brother – they're already in line to inherit the property. So the whole kinsman redeemer aspect in terms of keeping the property with the clan doesn't really become an issue. Mm. But in this case, because 
um, the eligible kinsman redeemers, both cousin Bert and Boaz, uh, are not naturally in line to inherit this piece of property. They are required to marry the widow in order to maintain that inheritance link mm. with that immediate family. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but that's so that's an uh, an explanation that you know I thought was reasonably persuasive. Mm. But everyone's quite happy with this. Yes. And, and so the presumption is that this is not an unfamiliar process. This no. has just been the, kind of the the legal drama of that particular day in the history of uh, Bethlehem. And so it all resolves nicely. And then we get these interesting pronouncements of blessing um, that the people that who are witnesses at the gate make over this new union. And we get two that may God make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Uh, and they'll say that uh, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar brought to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. Mm. Interesting that these are the two illustrations that are brought up uh, to bless this new union. Mm. So Rachel and Leah, famously rivals, mm. <laughs> did not get along, but major contributors <laughs> to uh, the line or the, the, Got the job done the community well, and, of Israel and what I wanted to say earlier because it was just a beautiful moment I missed it you said you know when the the wife takes the gods of that mm-hmm. which Rachel literally did <laughs> in that story remember she took the house literally idol. stole yeah. the wife anyway so this is a throwback to a not a very good joke continue no. um <laughs> but um Perez and Tamar so Tamar mm. um, was the well, let me get my facts straight. The daughter-in-law of Judah, yes, um, who through a series of failed leveret marriages was left a widow multiple times mm-hmm. without any heir, uh, and then when Judah himself failed to, um, you know, remedy the situation for her by marrying her to one of the other sons, uh, she took matters into her own took hands. Took matters Let's into her own hands. Well, so she dressed as a temple prostitute, seduced him, slept with him, took his ID basically yep. at the time as, and then turned up, as at payment. His, <laughs> turned up at his house later and said, I'm the one you just slept with and now I'm pregnant, so you're the one, buddy. <laughs> you're it. Tag, you're up. And yes. despite that deception and weird situation. Such a weird story. The text is quite clear that um, – this was what needed to happen in order to, you know, fulfill the continuation of the line. And that mm. Tamar, although her actions were unorthodox to say the least, was in the right. Um, and Perez, the child of that union, was celebrated, mm. um, uh, you know, as being a great blessing from God uh, mm. and, and absolutely accepted by the community. Yes, brilliant. We then go on and um, from verse 13 onwards, we get a little... Um, like Joyful conclusion, right? yeah, yeah. It's like, and essentially, definitely with the genealogy, it definitely comes across as a postscript. The happily ever after. Yeah. So this is the bit that some um, commentators like to think of a potential later edition, but it does tie the story together nicely where um, Boaz and Ruth share the bed um, and they have children, a son. Um, the woman said to Naomi, Did you say they share Obed? <laughs> <laughs> That's, Did you that, like that? I definitely said that, guys. <laughs> yes, that was my joke. I said it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, read the genealogy if you don't get that joke. Um, uh, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day is not, uh, has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And like you said before, Chris, um, Boaz is the name that is, you know, remains in the genealogies, whereas the former closest relative, um, Cousin Bert, his name is not even, he's Mr. So-and-so in Scripture. His name is not remembered. Um, through scripture. 
Um, and then the verse 16 is kind of like that final last point of the chiasm where the regeneration of Naomi is complete. Um, she's no longer called Mara. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Um, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. There's the Obed joke. Yes. Uh, he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. And then we get a nice genealogy um, to sum that up. Yeah. Interesting mm. that it seems from the text that the women of the village name the son. Yeah. And and the, the name means potentially like a worshipper or someone who serves. Yeah, a helper mm. sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting too that, you know, despite the book being called Ruth, that, you know, the narrative arc that gets completed is Naomi's mm. the whole way through. Yeah. Which is, um, if you've ever taken the time to read through particularly Genesis and the storylines and the titles in your Bible, it often doesn't neatly tie up. There's so much overlapping. And so mm. it kind of does fit into that almost that genre of Genesis and those early historical narratives that are painting a, that salvation story. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, so that's the text. Woo. What do we think? Uh, hopefully you're still listening. Hopefully you're still here. There's a lot in that, but it's amazing how deeply rich this book is. Just before we jump into our personal reflections, um, there is some really uh, excellent work by Robert Alter in his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, that picks up on particularly the, the Judah and Tamar story, but also plays into all of this and helps to unpack the depth of a close reading of a text like this. So definitely worth picking up a copy of that book. I'll put a, a link in the show notes uh, so you can find it. But yes, so Chris... Take us to the end. Well, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking about key takeaways. Like, you know, after reading this and as you say, there's so much death and there's so much you could take away from it. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe I'll launch off. One of the one of the key things which goes back to that main overarching theme that I mentioned at the start of the episode is the pictures that are painted of going beyond what is required you know there's that famous line mm. that's repeated in in liturgy you know what does the lord require of us um mm. and this sense that yes the lord does require things of us but the essence of true covenant faithfulness or the essence of true worship the essence of true belonging to the community of god and being in relationship with him is going beyond mm. simply what is obliged what is required and expressing a love and a faithfulness and a, um, a kindness um, that overflows what may be written in law or, or written in tradition. And and I think that um, the pictures of, of what Ruth does for Naomi, what Boaz then does for Ruth, because remember, as, as a, and maybe we didn't hammer this point home, as a kinsman redeemer, he's not obliged to take up mm. the responsibility. The yeah. responsibility is his, yeah, yeah, if he wants it. He has the right, but he's not obliged, and yet he does it anyway. At significant personal cost. At significant personal yeah. cost. And for a person he, he doesn't know very well but has heard what she has done in turn for someone else. Um, and then, you know, and I'm sure you guys will get to the typologies in a second, but this parallel with what God himself does for us over and above, over and above you know, what is, you know, required by justice or... Um, the treatment of our sins and and our rebellion against him is is a really beautiful picture. Yeah, so typological stuff. Um, and yet, yeah, spoiler alert: Boaz is a, the Jesus figure in this narrative, and like the the extension of the law, as you're saying, going above and beyond the law. You see that in a lot of his actions throughout the book. Like even as simple as 
you don't just have to glean from the field. You can also come and get water and barley and, and things like that. Like there's the law, but he's going above and beyond. And it's part of that he said, but um, to give all the characters a typological position, we start with Elimelech, who arguably is the cause of all of this in the first place, and that he's the one who, who dies and um, that his children die, which puts the, the family in danger. So Elimelech is often paralleled with Adam in that he is the the first, you know, to fall into that sort of sin nature. And then Ruth um, is, in a way, us in the story. She is um, born into a position of foreignness of separation um with a, with a sin nature is is the way a lot of commentators phrase it and she the, the important thing in the story is that she can't redeem herself she's portrayed in the story as a very virtuous woman like the town and Boaz says your reputation is great um but no matter what she does she actually can't take that final step mm. to redeem herself enter Boaz um or enter the uh, cousin Bert first <laughs> cousin Bert is unwilling to redeem us uh, unwilling to redeem um, Ruth. So Uncle Bert, or the closer relative, is often um, a picture of the law in our lives where first he was like, you know what, get free property, that sounds great, but oh wait, I've seen you and the widow involved in this deal and you don't meet my standards. I, I'm not taking you. I'm not going to redeem you. So um, the idea is that no matter how virtuous um, and loyal and loving Ruth is, she's never going to meet the standard of the closer relative of the law. She's never going to meet the standard of the law. Um, and to Boaz, who is our kinsman redeemer, represents Jesus, who, like you said, Chris, um, didn't have to. Um, it was still the choice that he made um, and that God sent him. Um, and then Jesus redeems Ruth where she can't redeem or us. Where Boaz, we, yes. Bo- sorry, yeah. Boaz redeems Ruth where she can't redeem herself. Jesus redeems us where we can't redeem herself. And then that final genealogy at the end is the beautiful picture where um, the restoration is complete. Um and then the the curse of Adam is essentially mm. reversed. Yeah, mm, I love that. For me, playing off the typology stuff is also bringing in that, like I said earlier, the kinsman redeemer with the cities of refuge and the high priest and the avenger of the guilty party. Uh, so Jesus being both the avenger of blood and the kinsman redeemer and the city of refuge yes. and the high priest. It's <laughs> like it's like just every part. If you, you know, the answer is Jesus. Um, Swiss Army knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's amazing. Uh, I think for me though, yeah, it's just that that demonstration of Hesed love of what that looks like. And uh, Boaz, yes, in typology of Jesus, but also as the human who's able to sacrificially love someone else who's in need. I think that's beautifully. Uh, beautifully significant for the moment in history we find ourselves and um, not just in the time of the year that Pentecost is, but also in the, the season of history that we find ourselves in now, the, the willingness of a party to put themselves at risk for the benefit of others is just so needed and so you know, significant for this moment in time and uh, countercultural then, countercultural now and powerful in its witness to the reality of who God is, that God doesn't need to be an active participant in it when we can demonstrate his character and nature through yeah. our, our own sacrifice and, uh, and the, as kind of, you know, um, passive beneficiaries of that on our own. He did it when we were undeserving uh, so we can then do it for others who are undeserving. I think that's significantly powerful uh, where we find ourselves right now. So, yeah, that's my vibes on it. I, there's too many. There's too many. Ruth is yeah, one of my all-time favorite books. Book. I think uh, probably I for hours. Yeah, probably the only other thing that I'd want to draw back attention to and which is why I really like the connection that this book has with Pentecost and 
especially the Christian implications of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and where the gospel is proclaimed in many tongues and, and people of many nations respond and become part of his kingdom. This idea um, that, you know, the hero of the story, the one who um, comes to God, who commits to him, who seeks him actively, seeks him through the type of Boaz, but but, but mm. seeks to do right by him and for others, who displays the loving kindness to others that God's people themselves weren't doing um, and who ultimately finds not only not just physical blessing but who gets to participate in the grand redemptive salvation arc of God's plan uh, is an outsider, is mm. a Moabites. She's a widow. She's in poverty. Yeah. She's a woman. Mm. All these characteristics that particularly in her time, but even to some extent today, rule her out of participating in so many other human institutions and creations and traditions. Um, you know, God welcomes and accepts um, and uses incredibly mightily throughout mm. the episode. And, and, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. I love it. It's uh, – yeah, depicted literally the first fruits offering, but also is the first fruits of that Genesis twelve promise of the, every nation being blessed through God's covenant people. Yeah, it's beautiful, amazing. Oh well, that was a, a Ruth's a bit of a pocket epic, and I think our episode was too. It's a, quite a long one, but I think there's so much in it. Hopefully, you've uh, you've persevered to the end, that you've come to the postscript, and you've been blessed as the genealogy has been read. Uh, and as the curtain <laughs> closes on Ruth and on our episode too, uh, trust that you've been blessed and encouraged by this. And uh, as Chris said right at the top, if you've got questions, comments, feedback, we are on all of the socials. You can also get us on uh, just yeah on the socials uh, at Bible Streams. You can get us on email podcasts at River Life Church. Um, you can find us, follow us, do all of those things. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and musings and questions and uh, your theories on why Ruth uh, was written and how it's best used. And we'll be back in two weeks with uh, yet another episode in our series, uh, Singing the Seasons, all about the megalots. Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.